0: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: This episode of Undistracted is brought to you by our sponsor, Chambord, an all-natural black raspberry liqueur produced in the Loire Valley of France. A big part of enacting change is for us to celebrate each other and lift one another up. Those people in our lives who have accomplished so much deserve a toast too. And what better way to raise a glass than a Chambord Royale? Just grab a champagne flute, pour the sparkling wine or a bubbly of your choice, and add a splash of Chambord, then garnish with fresh berries and cheers. Visit your local wine or liquor retailer today to find Chambord. Remember, please drink responsibly. Chambord Black Raspberry Liqueur, 16.5 ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Chambord is a registered trademark. Copyright 2022 hey y'all it's Brittany. folks used to ask me all the time when i'd run for office i took it as a major compliment like thank you for trusting me with your future and once upon a time i thought yeah maybe but the truth is that is not my jam (laughs) i think partly i was worried that i'd have to like censor myself too much recently started to fully own my voice without apology and I was not ready to start shutting up for political expediency. Like y'all I just started cussing in public two years ago and I was not about to just go back to my kid's bop self okay. Truth though I don't actually think that kind of self-censorship is necessary anymore. I mean the image of that perfectly refined politician who never swears and always goes to church and never ever wears a heel above two inches or a pantsuit more than once that dusty archetype of old is slowly, but surely, being wrestled to the ground by some badass folks. Take Congresswoman Cory Bush. Her approach is as authentic as her, and it's helped ensure that the perspective of a single mother, an organizer, and someone who has experienced the effects of policy is actually informing policy at the highest levels. You don't sleep out on the steps of the Capitol protesting the end of the rent moratorium if you're a by-the-book Manchurian candidate. She's just one of the leaders of the new school, turning tradition on its face, entering the arena because she knows that you can't win if you don't participate. So maybe I'm not a candidate, but maybe some of you are. And maybe we need to stop finding the reasons why we shouldn't and consider the reasons why we should. We are undistracted. the show today, a conversation with Morgan Harper, a brilliant young candidate for Senate in Ohio.
2: These are not normal people. These are not people that are actually trying to become U.S. senators to accomplish anything. It's like their mission is obstruction, and then trying to make our lives worse while they get rich, and everybody who funds them gets richer, too. That's
1: coming up, but first, here's Treasure Brooks with your untrending (laughs) news.
3: Okay, first off, we are not going to talk about Twitter and the man who wants to colonize Mars. The people and issues we care about are here on Earth. Thank you very much. So that's where we're going to spend our energy. The Supreme Court has upheld a ban on blind, disabled, and elderly Puerto Rican residents getting income from a federal benefit program. This is a big deal. Let's break it down. American citizens who are in the Supplemental Security Income Program and who live in the 50 states— get about 10 times the monthly income that Puerto Ricans do. Puerto Ricans get just about $84 a month. But why? Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens and have been since World War I. Justice Brett Kavanaugh said that the ruling was justified by the fact that most Puerto Ricans don't pay federal income taxes. But as Justice Sonia Sotomayor pointed out in dissent, plenty of states pay less into the federal treasury than other states. I'm looking at you. Vermont, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, and Alaska. This ruling shows just how unequally the Constitution is applied when it comes to U.S. territories. For example, residents of Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the Northern Mariana Islands can't vote for president. They get a representative in Congress, but that representative can't vote on legislation, even if it might affect their constituents. D.C. residents get shafted in this way, too, by the way. Look, the population of U.S. territories is 3.5 million people. That's more than the five smallest states combined. U.S. territories pay nearly $4 billion, with a B, in federal taxes annually. American Samoans serve in the military at a rate higher than any U.S. state. This inequality cannot continue. No territories chose to become part of the United States, they were either bought, bartered, or stolen. And their people still experience second-class citizenship today. So for Puerto Ricans to be denied the basic protection of disability benefits, which, if you ask me, aren't benefits at all, they're rights, is insulting. And one last thing, the elephant in the room is that 98% of the people in the US territories are racial and ethnic minorities. So is it a sheer coincidence that they're being shortchanged? I think not. Okay, from oppression to liberation, or rather, to free ass motherfucker. That's Chanel Monet's preferred pronoun, according to the LA Times. That, or they, them, or she, her. The recording artist said on Red Table Talk last week that they're non binary. The announcement is worth celebrating, especially because they had alluded to being non-binary in the past, but is only now ready to share it publicly. It's beautiful to see them live their truth, and Janelle drops some serious wisdom explaining what led them to this place. I just don't see myself as a woman solely. I feel like God
0: is so much bigger than the he or the she. She, It's like...
3: Right. it's like something and if i am from god mm-hmm. i am everything we have to congratulate monet for finding the space to come into their own thank you for showing us your queer afro futurist vision we can't wait to see where your journey takes you and us next finally the investigative podcast reveal has uncovered the truth about a top pregnancy information website. The so-called American Pregnancy Association may sound like the kind of place you'd go to get reliable information about having a baby, but it is actually produced by anti-choice activist Brad Imler. Imler is not new to this kind of fakery. He first started at the American Pregnancy Helpline, an anti-abortion hotline that masquerades as a resource for people with unplanned pregnancies. He later created the American Pregnancy Association website to try and reach more people with anti-choice misinformation. And his methods have worked. The page, cited by top medical institutions like Los Angeles' Cedars-Sinai and media outlets like the New York Times, purports to offer science-backed information. But Reveal found the site presents medical inaccuracies as facts, like the long-since disproven myth that abortion is linked with breast cancer. Unfortunately, this medical provider cosplay is not a new phenomenon. Crisis pregnancy centers first popped up in Hawaii in 1967, when the state legalized abortion and have continued to spread. An Associated Press analysis revealed that over the past decade, they've gotten tens of millions of dollars in taxpayer money to provide their deceptive services. Listen, the top reasons that people choose abortion are because they aren't financially prepared for a child, or are in relationships with a partner that they don't want to bring a child into. So if you want to prevent abortion, get to work on economic inequality, get to work on education and housing access, get to work on universal health care, child care and support for people in abusive relationships. But until you put in the hours on those projects, Brad Emler and anyone else who thinks they know better than we do when it comes to our uteruses, shut the hell up. Coming up. Britney will be talking to Morgan Harper, who might just be the next AOC, right after this short break.
1: Our sponsor, Board, cares about championing underrepresented groups and creating a more inclusive world. They're partnering with us on the Undistracted Spotlight to amplify the brands of BIPOC women and gender non-conforming entrepreneurs. For today's episode, we want to shout out Erica Jordan Thomas, founder and CEO of Get Launched Consulting, whose mission is to shift the power dynamics within the education sector and help educators from marginalized communities increase their net worth. Well, as a former teacher and former colleague of Erica's, I definitely like the sound of that. Erica also spent years as a teacher and education consultant, and she watched white men who had never worked in schools serve as consultants and misadvised schools. Erica. Erica knew many educators from the community who had the expert knowledge to help schools solve complex problems. And as of 2020, Erica has helped many of these educators launch their own education consulting businesses for impact and make a little money while doing it. Amazing job, Erica. Folks got to get paid their worth. Okay. To learn more, visit getlaunchedconsulting.com. That's getlaunchedconsulting.com. And we are back. So we were talking before about political candidates, about how our ideas of what makes someone quote unquote electable have changed and how maybe, just maybe, we're starting to get to a place where you can be a real human and with a real life and real experiences and still run for and win a seat. That would be good news for women who remain way underrepresented in Congress, which is still about three quarters male. There have been some early reports that the 2022 midterms could be a step forward for women, with Black women projected to make some gains both in Congress and in other roles. Hello, Stacey Abrams. I see you running for governor again this progress is slow, y'all. A recent study from the Brookings Institute found that women are still much less likely than men to even consider running for office. And y'all, while the study doesn't get into this, I will point out that a lot of the women candidates who are running in 2022 are Republicans. And you know that more Marjorie Taylor Greens in the halls of Congress is not my idea of progress. That's a hard pass. <laughs> we want candidates who practice empathy toward all people who who put justice at the center, who put BIPOC lives and trans lives and marginalized lives first, who stand up to power, not grab it and hoard it. My guest today has put those messages at the forefront of her campaign, and she's gotten national attention along the way. Morgan Harper is a candidate for U.S. Senate coming from her home state of Ohio. She's in a much-watched primary race up against incumbent Congressman Tim Ryan, who's already been endorsed by the Ohio Democratic Party. But Harper is giving him a run for his money, advocating for universal health care and accountability for big tech and using TikTok to get her message across. She's young, just 38 years old. But you know what? She brings a lot to this race. There's her personal experience. She was in foster care for the first nine months of her life before being adopted and has said that her, quote, whole story starts with the community stepping in and giving me a shot. There's her professional accomplishments. She got her law degree from Stanford and worked in the Obama administration, protecting consumers from corporate wrongdoing. We love that. And then there's her political experience. Harper ran for Congress once before when she tried for a House seat in 2020. She lost then, but she's trying again now for Senate, which, let me remind you, has exactly zero Black women in it right now, which is another reason why so many of us are watching Morgan Harper do her thing. I wanted to talk to her about values, empathy, and yes, TikTok. So I caught her on the campaign trail around March 31st, 33 days before her primary, coming up on May the 3rd. Morgan Harper, Senator of TikTok. Thanks for joining me. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm I'm joking because you're actually running for the U.S. Senate, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so I certainly do not mean to diminish your accomplishments. I'm simply saying that because, like a lot of people, the first time I conjure you was on maybe the most beautiful TikTok I've ever seen. You're debating Josh Mandel, who's the Republican candidate running for the Senate seat in Ohio, and not only do you absolutely eviscerate him but you're like perfectly composed while he spews the most racist, sexist, conspiratorial ideas. And to be clear, you don't have to be that composed because if you wanted to scream at him, that would have been perfectly justified. But like what what was going on in your head during these debates? Because this is not, we're at a different time.
2: Yeah, we are at a different time. And and I appreciate you saying that because I sometimes feel like I have to remind people of that and that these are not normal times. These are not normal people. These are not people that are actually trying to become U.S. senators to accomplish anything. It's like their mission is obstruction and then trying to make our lives worse while they get rich and everybody who funds them gets richer too, right? So uh, in my head, it's all about trying to call that out. I mean, I think that needs to be our overall democratic strategy is like, this isn't real. Josh Mandel says that he really cares about Homeless veterans. Okay, what's your plan to get people more housing? You don't have one. Call that out. So call it out for exactly what it is. You are being racist. These are racist tropes. Here's what I actually want to do to improve your life. And then and be aggressive about communicating that message.
1: This wild time has found you and Mandel in debate more than once, right? And he's kind of a stand-in for... The culture wars that the GOP wants to pursue. But during one of these debates, he accuses you of, this is my favorite one. And if you're listening, I'm doing air quotes, getting angry with him, right? Even though like, it's a debate and passion counts for something. But of course, we know this trope, we accuse black women of being irrationally angry, like our anger is un- not justified, and it's unbecoming. Um, and it's just such an exhausted trope. And yet, it is still so pervasive everywhere, but especially in politics. How do you how do you protect your mental well-being and preserve yourself in situations like this?
2: Yeah. You know, I had one moment uh, at the beginning there where it was clear he was going to go down that route because I think he said it probably 12 times that I was angry. Just in a everything I said is like angry. Oh, oh Morgan, why are you so angry? So worked up. And after the first couple of times, it's like, wow, he's really going to go there. And I felt myself being... I mean, who I am, you know, there's a side that I'm like, no, I'm about to go after this guy. But then you have to remember, there's a larger, larger picture out here. And ultimately, I do think we're going to be most effective when we just pivot back to substance constantly, constantly, constantly. And because we know, you know, you take one of those little clips and then Fox News is going to have a field day with it and what will come of it. And in fact, we can really contrast what they're saying by, like I said, just calling that out directly. And, you know, I mean, I think seeing for me to the, um, the Supreme court confirmation hearings, because I, cause I also minimizing a little bit, you know, what the impact is of, of some of that rhetoric coming at you and, and having to see her go through that, um, Katanji Brown Jackson, it was triggering of just what that experience was like and really feeling like, man, I, I just can't believe that this is what we've become in a way. And, you know, I spoke to a group of students recently and they were asking me about these debates as well. And, and a lot of young black women, women of color and like, well, how, how can we build resiliency? And my message was, I don't want you to have to be this resilient. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not the goal. Yeah. The goal is that you get to just be great. So for the people who have not had the pleasure of seeing
1: you across their for you page, like I have, and who maybe live outside of Ohio or who maybe live inside of Ohio and still have questions, what? is the morgan harper 101 like what are your biggest policy priorities right now and and really what what helped shape them
2: well where i'm coming from with all of this i mean why you know just to back up why i'm in politics in the first place is i had early exposure through life experiences about how we don't really have a level playing field for getting access to the american dream i saw that through edu- educational choices mm-hmm. that were made by my mom i saw that through the fact that you know being adopted being given up for adoption, going through, my parents going through this crazy divorce that I knew we only made it really out of chance. Mm -hmm. I was like, this can't be how we operate if we really are serious about being a country of, of the American dream. And then eventually, you know, having the experiences of being at places like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in Washington and understanding the limits of even great policymaking with good people who are doing it. If it's not moving the needle economically for people, if we have politicians that aren't on the side of really getting things done it's game over. And I would argue we're at about game over, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like this could be the end and what's it going to take to move in a different direction to actually fulfill that promise of what our country is supposed to be. From a policy perspective, I think it has to look like making sure that everybody has health care minimum. That's not just the right thing to do, We know that you need to be healthy to have any shot of leading a stable life. Mm -hmm. But even if that's not enough for you, it's also the economically efficient thing to do to make sure that we have Medicare for all. And I will go to bat with anybody who wants to talk about that. And I'm open to other ideas, but I haven't heard one that's as persuasive to me about how we're going to solve for that. I want to make sure that people are earning enough money to live. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the other issues that we find ourselves dealing with in communities across Ohio, across the country, is that people just don't have enough money and this is another point I made in one of those debates and so the positive news is like, there are things we could do about all of this I mean investing in the clean energy sector that's what I want Ohio to be a state of the future I want to make sure that you know we have people who are able to get access to the addiction recovery services that they need mental health care services that they need and and we can do this and and so those are you know just a suite of some of my priorities but I have a vision of how we can really, out here and uh and and just want to be able to be in a position to make it happen and
1: i mean you're you're throwing your hat into this ring at a relatively young age right so you are if you don't mind me saying so 38 which is a year older than me and i don't think i could imagine running for senate right now (laughs) for a whole host of reasons i'm curious how you feel um you know, younger generations can really inform the direction moving forward. Because I mean, you look at the Senate, right? We're not talking about a lot of 28 year olds, 38 year olds, even 48 year olds, frankly. Um, And I'm just curious your thoughts as to um, why now at this point in your life, do you feel like um, this is the right move to make?
2: Yeah, you know, I I think it's very interesting that we've gotten to this place where it is strange for people our age to be running for Senate. Because I agree with Mm -hmm. you. I mean, if you would ask me even probably three or four years ago, (laughs) would I be running for the United States Senate before I'm 40? The answer would have been a hard no, right? Because it was just, (laughs) no, that's what... Older people do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we look at, and this actually came up before, you know, we just had the, the first and what likely be the only debate for the Democratic primary before we were going on stage with the moderator and said, oh, you know, you're so young and it's good to see young people out here. And I was like, well, you know, it's, it is true that we have people that are about my age almost that are running entire countries. That's okay, right. In other places. And it is true that about the average age of our country is closer to what I am than the average age of the Senate, which mm-hmm. I think is over 60 and, and maybe we need to reorient our expectations of what these positions should be, mm-hmm. uh, truly reflecting the diversity of the population. So, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have expected it, but I do think it's necessary to be able to have more people who are millennials, you know, who are now yeah. full-fledged adults in, in positions in government of influence to make sure that our policy reflects where people are at and that we're, we're looking ahead for the next 40 years. We're invested in that, yes. most of the people that are in there will not be around for the next 40. So. We need to make sure that we have a say.
1: You know, I'm curious what your thoughts broadly are around the importance of running again after a loss. You know, there's a saying that um, when a man loses a race, he thinks America has made a mistake. When a woman loses a race, she thinks she's made a mistake and that she's not meant for politics. Is, is that a, a feeling you have to fight, right? Like I, I think about my hometown congresswoman, Cory Bush, if she hadn't kept running, she wouldn't be in Congress right now.
2: Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned Corey. I get chills even when I think about Corey winning because that was a really um, that was a that was a moment for me when Corey won that made me feel like oh, it was all worth it, you know, (laughs) in in a way. Um, Because yeah, I mean, when you lose, it's tough, and it's such a public loss when everyone watching, and that was that was really hard to process because I felt like you know i let people down and and so many people had invested time money into the campaign and that's that's hard to feel that um but you know the other thing though is it was interesting when i when we did reemerge as the summer hit and and people were going out for protests and different actions and things like that that i encountered people that were surprised to see me cuz exactly what you're saying mm. it, you're you're expected to just wither away in shame and never be heard from again and i was like okay No. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, I lost an election, but we did a lot of great things. Okay, we got over 20,000 votes. We had people come out that had never voted by absentee ballot before that were making it happen to to express themselves to support our campaign. So that was a victory. We need to reorient how we're thinking about what that was. Mm. And then I felt even more strongly about and I can't have people think that that that's a failure. Or if you have one setback, that then you're done. Hmm. Absolutely not. So that meant a lot to me, you know, just to be able to show people what, I guess we're getting back to that resilience point, but this is a, you know, maybe a more uh, expected type of resilience. Sure. Of course, you're not going to be able to win everything you do, but that I can show people that model. And I heard from a lot of people. Now this gets into a little bit more of a weird thing. I heard from some people that were like, I wanted to see you lose. I wanted to see you lose to be able to know that you're real. But I and I just heard that again about a week ago from somebody who's like, I'm so excited you're running again because I didn't. I wanted to believe that everything you were saying was real, but I've never heard anybody say it and actually mean it.
1: Now, that's such an interesting take, and in that you know these folks who are saying. <laughs> I kind of wanted to see you lose. Um I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> really? Inst- you got to come to Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> my instinct is to like individualize that, right? And say like what is wh- what why would you say something like that? And then I realize that perhaps that's even more of a reflection of how much people feel cheated by the political process. That the idea that somebody could actually have values and stand by them and then not be Bought out, them not be, you know, uh, them not chicken out that that is, uh, such a an unexpected thing, um, from politicians really across the globe, but certainly, um, in Washington, that perhaps people, um, have developed their own tests for that, which 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 is really fascinating, right? Because, you know, I I often say that democracy is under threat in two ways right one um in that there are folks who are very interested in creating disinterest from people right who want folks to lose faith in participating in the system who want folks to believe that they actually can't make it any better so why even try and then there's like good old-fashioned attacks against democracy like disinformation and (laughs) voter disenfranchisement and suppression um Looking out at the field of Republicans in Ohio, um, that you, one of whom you will run against if you win this primary, that debate stage for the Republicans running for the Senate seat in March, seven candidates on stage, only one of them acknowledges the legitimacy of President Biden's win. Um, literally six people on that stage believe and perpetuate the myth that the election was stolen. And there are many, many more conservatives that reflect this viewpoint, and are just detached from reality in a way that is terrifying, right? Not, not funny, terrifying. How do we, like everyday people, defend democracy against that level of disinformation,
2: <laughs> yeah, another, uh, another good and important question and a big question. Uh, so, you know, like I was doing in those Mandel debates, I think we need to just call it out directly. And, and we need to be very aggressive in doing that and uh, aggressive with him. I have a, a very great amount of empathy for individuals I meet around our state who maybe do ascribe to some of these views uh, and I you will know, give a shot with anyone to explain it. But when I'm interacting with one of these political figures who is spewing this stuff, I have no I have no patience and I don't think we should. And I think we need to be really direct about that. So I mean, that that, that to me is the strategy is calling it out and then trying to move towards. And here's what we need to be about. But we also need to be realistic about the fact that that is unlikely to happen through just the traditional, oh, we're going to flood the airways with ads, you know, come the, the November general election. It's like, no, we need to be boots on the ground, grassroots infrastructure everywhere, meeting people where they're at to make the case for why that is not for you. We are and deep investment. Lots of lots of conversations. I think that's our only hope. So grassroots is no longer just this like cutesy thing that some young people are talking about now. And then I think that is our only pathway to salvation from this stuff. You talk about grassroots and me thinks
1: some of that is maybe connected to a point that you always make about growing up in a union household. Um, I grew up in a union family too, and I'm, I'm wondering why it's important to you to consistently make that point on the campaign
2: trail. Well, because especially in Ohio, uh, this, concept has been completely weaponized, you know, as somehow, oh, if you're in a union, you're going to be losing <laughs> control over your life and you'll never be able to, you know, have enough autonomy and, and advance in your career. And the the brainwashing mm. has been so exquisite. And I don't know if you find that, you know, in Missouri, but that's what's happened here, where we have some people that are, scared to even say the word, you know? And it's like, what is this? No, no, that's at the core of being able to build your career. I mean, when, you know, my family was going through crazy, crazy things that my mom was able to to know that she could take a few minutes, be able to get to a a lawyer appointment, get to a court appointment, whatever, and that she would still have a job. That's how you're able to navigate things. Do you have some job security? And so I think it's really important to emphasize that so that we are educating the next generation about the strength of unions and the need to support them. I I, um, was at an event that some Ohio State students put together and it's like, make no mistake about it. Right now, your fight is making sure that you're paid enough as a student worker. But the reason why they don't want you to talk about these things, the reason why they don't want you to talk about unionization is people are trying to prepare you for an adulthood of just taking it. No, (laughs) we need to be Mm -hmm. countering that and Mm -hmm. need to know that there's strength in that collective organizing to be able to push back against power. And, you know, and power is what power is. And you have to have a balance of power if we can have equitable outcomes.
1: Yeah, I, I used to be a teacher and was a full dues paying member of the Washington Teachers Union and needed that sick leave bank when I was in the hospital for a week with a kidney issue, right? And I, it's, it's both the large political things and the ability to organize, um, real everyday people and it's also those those everyday communal mutual aid things that we that we depend on when it comes to that organizing body i mean as you're saying there's a specific conversation happening about unions in Ohio. We've seen the percentage of unionized workers in Ohio declining for decades. And still, given where it began, it's one of the most heavily unionized states in the country. Um, And we know that there's a a concentration of what I think a lot of people would call traditional unions, right? Um, Auto workers, steel workers. But there are also Starbucks locations that are organizing and other newer businesses where folks are saying, to your point we actually don't want to just take it. We want to have a say in what happens with our lives and our wages. I'm curious what you've observed about the potential for this conversation in Ohio, especially with some of these, um, these
2: newfound organizing efforts. I think there's a lot of potential because I think a lot of young people are starting to realize that where we're headed is not going to add up. And that's becoming clearer and clearer Mm -hmm. by the day. And in fact, folks would be willing to maybe sacrifice a little perceived autonomy with some greater expectation of security down the line. And and ultimately, that's what what we're up against. We're up against this philosophy of individualism at all costs to be able to have total control over your life that is a facade, okay, versus understanding that and coming together, we can actually drive forward better outcomes than we could alone. And that's, that's not Pollyanna-ish stuff. That's just power. That's power dynamics. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of younger people are waking up to that. I also am excited to see a lot of connections from folks who have been more traditional union members who maybe are older, starting to mentor some of the younger unionizing efforts that are happening. Those connections are really important. And then of course, I think that Politics can be a tremendous vehicle for accelerating that. And then we have to have, you know, some issues that really bring people together. I think the minimum wage issue is one that that naturally just unites a lot of different types of people across the state. But then also looking at something like health care, which traditionally has been used as something to divide a lot of union members from other people who maybe were advocating for universal health care, Medicare for all. But I'm sensing there, too, there's a shift in a lot of union members recognizing Negotiated healthcare benefits, not actually serving our needs and having mm-hmm. connections with people. And even you know, in Canada, I've, I've talked to some union members in Northwest Ohio that have connections to people in Canada, and, and now we're seeing they're just negotiating for more money that then they get to do with what they want. They don't have to waste time trying to negotiate for healthcare. So, um, yeah, you know, making sure that we have the issues that are going to be unifiers as well. I think will bring more people into the fold to recognize the, the power of unions, but then also be able to push for in a more efficient way to a coalition of people to support these policies.
1: Before I let you go, you know, if, if you are elected, you would be Ohio's first black woman Senator. Um, in fact, the state's first woman Senator at all, which is my God. Um, the fact that we're still counting first in 2022 is both terrifying, um, and fascinating. And I'm guessing that there are a lot of people who are listening who could absolutely have a lot to contribute to our government at every level, but maybe don't see themselves entering uh, entering the fray. What, what do you want a person from a marginalized background, a person who folks count out, a person who might even count themselves out, what should they consider about maybe um, getting in the arena like you have?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And what I would want people to consider and what I'm usually advising people are asking me about whether they should run for office is, you know, what are the qualifications? What do you need? Did you need to hold this position and this much money? And most important thing to me, especially as we embark on these 2020s, which are wild, right, Uh, is authenticity. Mm. And I've found in my life that the people who have been through the most, (laughs) are usually those that are the most authentic. And because of some of the things that we've already discussed with the disillusionment, distrust of the political process, being able to have folks that are in these positions that, that others perceive as authentic is just, a, um, that, is, that is the only qualification right now to me to have a lot of electoral success, especially if you're trying to be a Democrat. And so, uh, yeah, there, there needs to be more of us running who really get it. And it's so interesting because I've learned in starting to be in this arena now, there's so many people who try to have it, but you can see through it. You know, I think we probably are all can think of examples of that. And that's the most important thing. So, you know, you don't need to check every box. You just need to keep checking your boxes for yourself to make sure that when you get to the point of wanting to run, that you are intact Mm -hmm. for who you are, what you believe in, why you're doing it, and that you can sell that to other people.
1: Amen and amen. Morgan Harper, thank you so much for spending time with us on your very busy uh, campaign calendar. We appreciate it.
2: No, appreciate you. Great to meet you, Brittany.
1: Morgan Harper is running in the Democratic primary to be the next senator from Ohio. When folks found out I had a baby, as you can imagine, we got a ton of books. Like half of them were A is for activist. (laughs) That's an actual book. And if you need one, let me know. I have plenty extra. Baby M and I have read it now quite a few times. And D is one of my favorite passages. D is for small d, democracy. The Rhyme goes on to talk about how it is the people, and only the people, who should be organizing to make the decisions that matter most. It sounds radical to read that to an infant, but perhaps if that was everybody's bedtime reading, candidates and electeds like Morgan, who believe in the power of the grassroots, wouldn't be rare, they'd be standard issue. It is in the grassroots where we not only find our power, it is there we should also take our direction. Because no one candidate, whether they've been in Congress for 40 years or four, will ever be our savior. Y'all, I don't stand politicians. They are human, they are fallible, and they will never, ever take positions that satisfy all of us all at the same time. But I do, and will always, believe in the collective power of the people and the vision that we create together. As the disability activists say, nothing about us should ever be decided without us. So whether you're going to put your name on the ballot like Morgan to advocate for the ideas you know matter or you're going to go support someone else who does, it is always time to get in the arena. That's it for today, but never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Treasure Brooks is our correspondent. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Mary Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks also to Hannes Brown, Davey Sumner, and Raj Makija. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself. And our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Ms. Paghetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate us on Apple Podcasts or most places you find your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being and thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnick Cunningham. Let's go get free.